Shit Platypus Says, episode 34. On this episode of SPS, we'll talk about Adam Curtis's new documentary series, Can't Get You Out of My Head, an emotional history of the modern world just released last month on the BBC. We'll chat about the responses by the left to the series, to Adam Curtis, by Doug Lane from Zero Books, the Socialist Workers Party, and Red Scare podcast. We discussed the accusations made against Curtis and also what the series has to say about the decline of the left in the 20th century. Is it a critical history? What does Adam Curtis show us about the present? Our European correspondent, Andreas, as well as Victor Kova from our Denmark chapter will join us for that conversation. But first, some words on the upcoming Platypus International Convention happening starting this weekend on the 28th of March. What's up? So you got an announcement? Platypus has announcements right now? Yeah, we have the uh, 13th annual Platypus International Convention coming up. The 28th is about to be the first panel. Time is now. Convention time has arrived. We are doing it over the course of the next three weekends. So the convention as a whole is themed the Platypus Synthesis, which is actually uh, our 2011 convention theme. So it's a decade later looking back at the past decade, in a sense. But it's also looking back at the millennial left as a whole. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the original Platypus synthesis, we had two panels, the legacy of Trotskyism and the politics of critical theory. What is the Platypus synthesis? So the Platypus synthesis is really circles the theory of historical regression. And so the two schools of thought, which we turn back to in the 20th century to address the theory of regression, are the writings of Leon Trotsky in the interwar period and the writings of the Frankfurt School mm-hmm. of Adorno and Horkheimer. So the original Platypus synthesis sought to look back on the currency of not just Trotsky, but Trotskyism mm-hmm. and on the politics of the Frankfurt School of critical theory. And, you know, of course, the times were a little bit different then. Back then, there was still the ISO. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, the International Socialist Organization. That's right. There was just the book released towards a new manifesto, which was a conversation with Horkheimer and Adorno, in which they make explicit mm-hmm. their Marxism through Lenin, right? Mm-hmm. And it was a bit mm-hmm. of a stir, so we sought to address it then. Today, we don't we don't have either the ISO, and there's no book that just came out uh, expressing their Marxism, the Frankfurt School. So mm-hmm. we're, we're taking it up in a different way. So we want to think about why it is that in the wake of the failed social democratic movement to elect Bernie and Jeremy Corbyn, there is a turn mm-hmm. back to the Frankfurt School to explain that failure. For instance, for the politics mm-hmm. of critical theory. Mm-hmm. With the legacy of Trotskyism, I mean, since in the last decade, since the initial iteration at the convention 10 years ago, almost all the Trotskyist parties have liquidated. I mean, most recently, the Spartacist League is, uh, it's not its not looking good. As far as I know, they haven't officially said. Yeah, but the Workers' Vanguard, uh, I think, hasn't been put out in a while, and that that's a bad sign. It's a bad sign, yeah. So it's not looking too hot. 
so you know so we're addressing these things in in changed terrain but really what we're addressing with both of these panels is the past 10 years in a sense but also the history of the millennial left and the millennial left's ability to digest this history. Right. A constellation of issues, the dying out of the sectarian left and the petering out of the social democratic imagination and the death of the millennial left. Like that kind of characterizes our present. Mm -hmm. Right. So that brings me to the panel that's happening this weekend on March 28th. That's from protest to politics. What was the millennial left? And that'll be a panel featuring a variety of speakers. Connor Mosh, who's from DSA Class Unity. John Judas, who's from Talking Points. He also wrote for the National Journal and the New Republic. We'll have a, a Platypus Affiliated Society member on that panel, mm -hmm. Danny Jacobs. We'll have John Lavelle, who was actually just interviewed by Danny Jacobs in the PR. And Ingar Salty of the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. So what we'll be wanting to get at there, in what ways the millennial left themselves transform themselves in terms of their aims, their horizons for political change. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. What did the millennial left mean for left politics? Yeah, I think a lot of us in Platypus read Leo Panich's uh, article. It's his final interview, so it's, it's in the Tribune. In the Tribune, that's right, where he tells the history of the millennial left as that is progress. And so we're taking that up in this convention, That's is right. that what happened? Right, yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's a theme which recurs throughout our convention events this mm -hmm. year. The next panel that we'll have, the next public panel is Legacy of Trotskyism. And again, the question comes up in the terms of, is the end of sectarianism a positive overcoming or is it a regression? Mm -hmm. So we have in this panel, uh, some returning panelists, Brian Palmer, who was, I think, in our original panel on Trotsky and Trotskyism. Yeah. Uh, Mike McNair from CPGB, Richard Rubin, who is also a member of Platypus. Yeah, yep. Yeah. This perhaps is one of the more esoteric panels, um, given the present left's concern with social democracy or new social movements, right, where they just kind of bypass this whole history of Trotsky and Trotskyism and uh, maybe sounds strange to people, but there's uh, a lot to say about the history of these sects, which for a long time maintain a kind of memory of the revolutionary legacy of the Russian Revolution in the 20th century that now uh, may be gone completely. Yep. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think they maintain a history of the internationals in a way that, that you know, the DSA, for instance, doesn't. They don't have that present and on the table. And then we have the politics of critical theory that is on Saturday, April 3rd. All of this is going to be on the website at platypus1917.org. So there'll be a schedule with all of the Zoom links, etc. So the politics of critical theory. Right. So this, I mean, this came from some observations on the part of certain platypus members. Uh, so there was an exchange in Jacobin between uh, Mike Watson, he's written a couple books published by Zero Books, and Matt Taibbi, the kind of liberal journalist. But there have been other exchanges as well. Like Dennis Gramer brought up the Frankfurt School, came up on, was it Off of Bunga Bunga with Amber Frost? Oh, that, that's that right. She brought, up, she brought up reading Adorno. That's right. Uh, no, it got brought up, but it was really funny because they were like, oh, you know what happens when people read Adorno? You know, you can't read too much Adorno. And she was like, yeah, yeah I know. Uh, yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> no, so. Yeah, what does that mean? 
so so we'll see i mean it's it's come up it's come up there you know i was recently working on an article to address peter gordon wrote a piece for the nation i believe trying to say that the far right uh has a new life today and that we need adorno to vote democrat to keep the far right from Uh taking power it's in the air so i mean it's just it's just around so you know and i it's no accident you know, in the wake of the left's failures over the past 10 years, um, it's no accident that they're turning to the Frankfurt right. School to make sense of that. So we want to mm-hmm. host that conversation about mm-hmm. what that's mm-hmm. all about. So we have the last panel is the death of the millennial left. It kind of it kind of rhymes with the first panel from protest to politics. What was the millennial left? The, the central difference being that it's all platypus speakers and the model for it comes from the Dialectics of Defeat panel from the Left Forum in 2009. And that was a panel put together by Platypus members, and they were addressing the Dialectics of Defeat, the regression of left politics in the 20th century. And uh, there was something about that panel from 2009 that we wanted to do once more today. What that panel left out is the history of the millennial left. And that's what Platypus members who have spent their time in this organization uh, engaging the left have under their belt is the ability to discuss that history. Platypus is a millennial organization, and we were founded in 2006. So there is a history of the millennial left to be told through the history of our organization and the kind of pedagogy that, that we're carrying on. So there's a moment to reflect on what that history has added up to. What has the death of the millennial left looked like over the last 14 or so years? Yeah. The reason why I wanted Nick Kreitman to speak on this panel for the first, to speak about the first phase of the millennial left is he was actually on our first ever panel. That's right. On imperialism. Yeah. And so the first phase that we'll be addressing is the anti-war period. Mm -hmm. And Nick Kreitman was a member of the new SDS and spoke on that very first panel on imperialism in the left. So that is uh, the schedule. We look forward to having conversations. There will be question and answer periods. There will be post-panel discussions. We hope that you join. Obviously, everything is virtual and everything will be recorded. The recordings will be uploaded to YouTube. Yep. All right. Thanks, Grant. Thanks, Grant. Bye. We have Victor Kova with us today. Victor, where where are you at? I'm currently in Denmark. I created the chapter in Aarhus a few years ago and uh, used to be the head pedagogue. Great. So because Sophia Freeman um, promised an episode on Adam Curtis, we're sitting here today to discuss Can't Get You Out of My Head, An Emotional History of the Modern World, what the left has to say about this new series and then chat about the series itself. I think there wasn't a lot of reactions from the left, I think. I mean, there were, Jacobin did interview him. He was on Red Scare. Um, what else? Russell Brand. Doug Lane made a video about him. Yeah, the SWP yeah. had an article about it, but it wasn't really extensive. Like, it didn't really, like, it was barely an article. Yeah, it was barely, yeah. like the SWP thing. We can link it in the description of this episode. Yeah. It wasn't really like a lot. And from what I take it, 
the thing they was they were criticizing Curtis for was that he puts the blame on ordinary people and not on those who are in power and who are sort of you know responsible for the helplessness and the failed individualism we we sort of experience today according to Curtis so that was the point but I think that's a bit bit weak and it, it doesn't really explain first of all why that is the case how that ordinary people or whatever they mean by that uh, relate to uh, people who are responsible or are in power or what's the dynamic behind that yeah they quote him yeah he says as Curtis puts it as the SWP these strange days did not just happen we and those in power created them together and they say that's nonsense so they object that like regular people have created the world that we exist in today that yeah. it's been created really by those in power I guess I mean they don't really give a counter they're just kind of calling it bullshit and moving on. And they call him a neoconservative. And he's talked about it himself. Like Curtis has characterized his own perspective as close to neoconservatism. But at the end of the day, he doesn't seem to be a politician or want to like present a political perspective. But the SWP has called him a neoconservative and that, um, and that the images reveal his neoconservatism, except that they don't really say how they do that. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's interesting that in the in the interview with Red Scare, Curtis says that like any good journalist, he doesn't you know present his own opinion in his work, and I think that's interesting in the way how the left thinks about the the fact that that Curtis sort of outed himself as a neoconservative or sort of leaning towards libertarian views. And I think it's questionable in how far you can really pull that out or, or see that in his documentaries. I don't think actually that that's the case so much. Yeah, it's funny. I have, I was just going to say that I was with a Chinese uh, friend of mine who um, has studied in America and like he studied art history. And he was really upset at the documentary series. He was, I think, up to four because of how uh, Mao's wife, uh, Zhang Jing, was represented. And he was like, I just feel like he's presenting her as a victim. And I feel like there's like sympathies with her. He didn't know much about Curtis himself, but I thought it was interesting that he read the documentary as being extremely sympathetic to this communist leader. And he was, he was really upset about that. So... It's kind of like read whatever you want to read into it, I guess. Like, I don't know. There's a lot of room there. Right. And in his own way of presenting himself as like, sometimes he says he's a neoconservative and then sometimes he says completely different things. Right. It's not clear who he is, what he wants. You know, if he is a neoconservative beginning his documentary and ending it with that David Graeber quote is sort of ballsy and not really uh, what you would expect from a neocon, uh, it might be accurate but so i think he's more he's uh, he's trying to hide himself or to to not present too clear a view of or to 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 let people see the documentary and get from it what they want rather than receive it according to what they think his political leanings are yeah i think that's that's very true actually doug lane in his video quotes that interview um adam curtis gave to uh, a magazine uh, that he adam curtis is a product of of his time and he doesn't really have like 
a coherent political worldview in that sense. I think it's true that the left, or not only the left, but people who watch his documentary sort of read into that what they like, because it's interesting, Pam, you just mentioned the reaction from your Chinese friend, and the initial reaction from Red Scare was that they sort of, at the beginning of the interview, felt drawn to the fact that he was presenting, you know, female political agents in his uh, history of the modern world. They really stressed the fact that they find they found it interesting how Mao's wife was portrayed as a sort of really strong, um, motivated political figure who is a woman. Yeah, she was motivated. <laughs> she was motivated, all right. <laughs> uh, I guess it's also because um, Afeni Shakur is portrayed right and in fact she's i think she was presented pretty sympathetically i just wanted to go back to the point the swp and the swp that's the social socialist workers party um in their short i don't know 500 word article that you know they as is already touched upon they hold the swp hold politicians and corporate execs responsible for the powerlessness people feel and i guess like as avowed marxist that goes that assessment kind of goes against Marxism, Marxism recognizing the crisis of bourgeois social relations, like unsocial sociability, that social relations are like we do, we do make, I guess we do generate society amongst ourselves that is in um, crisis. Right. So just to, I don't know, blame, put all the blame on um, politicians and people in power in a way kind of as Marxist takes away agency from or potential agency from a, to use in the colloquial sense the working class yeah and also the left not responsible for recreating those unfree social relations because that's who curtis is kind of pointing at right he's saying that mm -hmm. even though the swp attempted mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. transform society that it became absorbed into the status quo and they reject that they're like that's not true I mean, in that sense, Adam Curtis is more of a Marxist or a sort of better Marxist than they are in mm. pointing to the the way politicians themselves have to obey the role of these abstract machines. And, of, uh, you know, he never points to like, uh, uh, it's not clear what he points to, but at least the dispossession of agency, of everybody's agency by increasingly by machines and predictive models is a lot more interesting uh, and the way the left indeed sort of mm -hmm. dropped the ball and, and, mm -hmm. and gave up on doing anything I thought was uh, in that sense a lot more uh, interesting it sounds and what the SWP imagines is going on. I was thinking of um, the SWP's like a short article on the Curtis and then I was thinking back to Trotsky and the failure of the revolution and this and Trotsky trying to uphold a not fall into a Stalinophilic or Stalinophobic position and that the the revolution, well, the failure of the revolution in Russia with Stalin being an accommodation to defeat, um, and that revolution continues in one country. And I guess I'm making a huge leap here, but I guess for the in the SWP in that article, it's very much that the revolution continues, and um, and any kind of reflection about the impotence of the left is like a you know it's an allergic reaction they're having. I felt. Like all revolutionaries before them, they had tried to appeal to the white working class and get them to rise up against the system. But no one seemed to be interested. And what we've been talking about here today 
is the problem of racialism and the problem of the attack by the government and by the employers on working people's conditions. The radicals decided that this was because the ordinary people had been brainwashed by the media and by consumerism and turned into what their theory called one-dimensional creatures which meant that they were the wrong kind of person to start a revolution with. Their whole mind is, you know, like a cabbage. They're suppressed. They can't do exactly what they want. They haven't got any freedom. They haven't got any freedom to, to do exactly what they want under the system. What I mean, is, we what certainly is, what do. Is yeah. Well, being able to express yourself in, in, in whichever way you feel is right. I think it's not only the system that's wrong. I think it's the people that's wrong. Curtis's documentaries are good insofar as they provide some sort of mirror for, for the dead left today because apparently people seem to read uh, stuff into it that maybe says more about themselves than about the actual you know, documentaries. Like another example from that, because we just talked about the SWP, another example of that would be Doug Lane, who um, criticizes Curtis as being idealist, sort of, as not uh, recognizing the the necessity of changing the basis of society. And he, he brings up in that same video uh, Frank Ferretti. Frank Ferretti um, basically argues that, that it wasn't um, the material conditions that were the determining factor in, in, let's say, ancient Greece or the Middle Ages. And Doug Lane says, well, no, that's where you know, Ferretti forgets Marx and, you know, his insight that the base of society is the decisive factor for societal change and changes in history. And this is, and this is where he, where Doug Lane ties together, you know, Ferretti and Curtis as both being uh, idealists because Curtis also doesn't mention like the material conditions of society as the decisive factor. And I think the point is that rather that it's bourgeois society that first time in history makes the history up to bourgeois society appear as the history of the, the forces of production. It's not like the invention of Marx to do that. It's not the insight of Marx to do that. What Marx does is give an imminent dialectical critique of this way how society appears in bourgeois society. So that's the point I think that is lost or that is misunderstood in Doug Lane's criticism of Adam Curtis. But it also maybe brings us to like the documentary itself. And whether it's true if Adam Curtis is in that sense conservative or is his work is conservative. And I would say to me, what I get from, from his work is more like a, a classical liberal perspective in the sense of maybe let's say 18th century liberalism just the, the basic idea of, you know, society uh, having the aim of providing the possibility for everyone to freely develop their own potential, right? Like a liberal perspective of the way how society should be run, how the state in that sense should, you know, be run um, in relation to society. We brought up that Curtis might be uh, a symptom of the crisis of neoliberalism because Curtis says that real individualism hasn't happened yet um, and that maybe real individualism is hampered by the past i.e. colonialism, slavery, like the fallout of the, of the failure of the revolution and that actually real individualism hasn't been tried and that he's kind of advocating this kind of individualism that has a collective power 
and also involves taking back the internet but yeah in the russell brand interview exactly um he said real individualism never emerged it is held back by imperialism in britain and racism from slavery in the united states i think this was the weakest part of the whole series so he's clearly plugging into this anti-colonial like conversation that's happening across liberal circles and say maybe there's a kernel of truth in what everyone is complaining about and the way i think his conservatism is expressed in how he talks about the past you know he has this idea that these imperial these colonial experiences this kind of trauma like the old trauma that it's never resolved and that this is the problem that you know colonial subjects were promised emancipation and liberty as british subjects but they never got it and so the old resentment right it's like really it's like about resentment takes on new pathological forms that then continue to haunt society and they're never resolved. I don't know. There's this idea that instead of the liberal optimism, because you said like classic liberal, you know, and I was like, well, there, there's a kind of optimism about like self-realization and potential. And here actually gets kind of strange and Hobbesian. In an interview that he gave for Jacobin, he calls society like a mob of piglets. That need to be they need to be uh, reeled in somehow it's almost as if those people during the 70s that were trying to transform society did it as a result of this old resentment that is building and this anger and disappointment non-violence is okay but you get nowhere with non-violence i like violence malcolm x said that you know said the idea he rooted it rather in the minds of many blacks he really started to think the ball rolling you feel that violence is necessary in order to get rid of what you would call the oppression? It wouldn't get rid of it. But it will open, you know, some of Whitey's eyes to say, well, you know, we're not joking, we really mean what we say. Do you find yourself really hating white people? Mm, yes. Some people hold grudges, and I do. Look how they treat mm. How many flows did my great-grandmother strew, you know? How many babies did she take care of that weren't hers? You know, stuff like that. And in a way, like, for me, that was some of the best portraits were, like, uh, those of Michael X and uh, uh, Peter Rackman, right? So the, the, the slum landlord who's this guy who managed to leave Nazi Poland, escape it to Russia, gets imprisoned in Russia, escapes, arrives in the UK and then becomes a slum landlord and has, you know, this big car and a bunch of prostitutes living with him and so on. And one of his aides is this guy who came from Trinidad as a kid to sort of, you know, make it in England and ends up having to be a slum landlord as well. And then ultimately becomes like the organizer of black power in the UK for a bit until he goes back to uh, the West Indies and ends up getting hanged for like killing some people and growing marijuana and so on. And I thought that was really interesting precisely in the, the, the both the twisted ways in which people have had to realize, you know, have tried to realize uh, some sort of not American dream, but British dream, 
and uh, and the way that fails and how that feeds into some bizarre politics that also uh, disintegrate. I thought that was that was really nice trajectory, right? A really interesting one. I think he's at his best, you know, or what I like about the documentaries is that he sort of measures all these um, political movements and phenomena in the, from the last, let's say, 80 years or so. Like, he measures them according to their own aims and standards. And I think that's really great about him. Like, he he, he really asks, okay, what did the, the Chinese revolution actually want? And did they achieve it? What did the democratic revolution of the neoconservatives really want? And did they achieve it? And in that sense, it's it's very clear and, and can be illuminating. And to, to the point about, like, optimism you mentioned, Pam, I think why I said that to my mind, his perspective or the perspective of the documentaries are rather attuned to classical liberalism is because, you know, that he has to, to sort of presuppose that the way how society functions now is not how it should, you know. To be that kind of clear and pessimistic yes. about today's world, you really have to have some sort of standard according to which you measure it. And to my mind, that standard is actually freedom. And, and that notion of freedom is a classic liberal one, I would say. Yeah, and he does, you know, he says maybe we're stronger than we thought we were, right? So there's this kind of opening for that old potential, right, that's being hampered down or repressed. But I guess it's a question of mediation. It's, you know, episode two is where this history of the left comes flashing up. And... And it really colors everything else in the series because it's there in the background the entire time that what's playing out is this attempt, as you said it, right? Like the attempts to change society, that he's following it through. And and that is a history of defeat. And I think maybe that's why some Platypus members respond to it strongly because he shows this like problem on the left battling with its own defeats. Victor, you were talking about the guilt and fear people are left with by histories of uh, colonialism and um, and terror. Um, and he also paints a picture of the American settlers as being ingrained with this fear as, and suspicion as as well. I'm not quite, I can't quite remember how he links the dots there. But um, maybe that's like an unrevolutionary perspective on potential and it's not what adam smith had to what say. is good about it is that he actually views i mean that's what he says at the beginning of at least like the latest documentary and also i think in other ones that he tries to see or follow through how the present world came to be as a result of a failure right i mean that's my impression and he's good in in showing how how that is the case through his like way of artistically you know um doing his thing, right? But the only thing where it really is questionable in how far, you know, this has anything to do with the left at all is that for him, I think Marxism, like historical Marxism never, you know, really it presented anything that, that, that according to its own standards could, you know, lead throughout all those contradictions or through these contradictions his view of history is conservative in that sense, or is classically liberal in that sense that it completely neglects, you know, the historical horizons of um, 
Marxism. He's starting with the Cultural Revolution. The horizons are of a kind of failed Marxism. And that's why it's like a history of regression after Trotsky, right? It's like a very hard way of thinking about redeeming this part of the 20th century. Yeah. Mao and Zhang Qing suspended all schools and universities, which released 120 million students, who were then sent out to find and destroy the demons that were hiding among those in authority. Our teachers were often paraded through the streets and we made them chant, I'm a demon, I'm a devil. I deserve to die. That's the song and they had to sing it. And they all sang. Whoever didn't got beaten up, some very badly. We used our belts to whip them. Some people used sticks. And the mother of this teacher was pushed over a bridge and fell to her death. L'impérialisme dicte partout sa loi. La révolution n'est pas un dîner. La bomba est un tigre en papier. Les masses sont les véritables héros. Les ricains tuent et moi je mets ma homao. Les fous sont rois et moi je bois ma homao. Les bombes tonnent et moi je sonne ma homao. Les bébés fuient et moi je fuis ma homao. In the Red Scare interview, um, he comes out as quite sympathetic to the causes of Black Lives Matter as having a real demand upon the world that could, I guess, change the world, um, which ties in with what we've already been saying about um, Curtis's viewpoint. I mean, in, in many ways, like what it reminded me of, uh, which perhaps it, it's not really classical liberalism, but it's much more perhaps something like Hannah Arendt, uh, you know, like sort of mid fifties, uh, but also actually in terms of the left, it reminded me a lot of um, the sort of people who come out of socialismo barbarie in France, right? Who used to be Trotskyists, who give up on Trotskyism, and then complain about capitalism, in t- but also in, uh, about Marxism in terms of getting rid of politics. The problem in capitalism is there's no more politics and really we should do, you know, social, civil society organizing and civil society uh, uh, living in itself is like uh, uh, politics. And that's what's missing. You know, for Marx, the problem is there's in a way too much politics and we'd like to hopefully attain a stage where the the government of people is replaced by uh, the administration of things, right? Where we don't have to spend all our time doing politics. Maybe we could address the David Graeber quote that he opens with, that a lot of people have been struck by. I mean, just one thing, just to mention that article in uh, Art, Art Forum. Art Review, Art Review, sorry. Uh, that was uh, also portraying Curtis as an idealist in some way, but not in the same way as Douglas Lane, it seems, in that the problem was that he wasn't re- that Curtis wasn't really able to address the economic upheavals that clearly shaped 
those uh, political attempts at their failure, right? The crisis uh, of the 70s, and especially the economic crisis of like 2008, which I also thought I was really disappointed in the way like the past 20 years were sort of mashed into one thing as if nothing had really happened, as if 2008 wasn't something. And also as if uh, uh, Occupy hadn't been a failure, massive failure as well, right? To get to Grebo. Uh, I thought perhaps a quote by Grebo would lead us to like, what about the failure yeah. of Occupy? What was yeah. that about? And instead, no, that's just, uh, he passes over that. You know, Curtis reminds me, or the documentary reminds me of how we in Platypus, re like on our um, syllabus that we read in a reading group, we have um, certain texts uh, on it written by like non-Marxists and also people who, who declare that they are not Marxists and not even like especially left-leaning. For example, uh, J.P. Nettle. We read a text about uh, of him about the the German Social Democratic Party before the First World War. And it's interesting that sometimes maybe people who are not, you know, affiliated with left groups or with what counts as Marxism today can have a clearer picture on failures in the present. Or even maybe the symptomatic expression of regression, like the fundamental depth of the transformation of society after these defeats, which he seems to capture. I think that, you know, you mentioned the century of the self, but I think something that Curtis is quite strong in is this problem of uh, psychoanalysis and like what, what happens to the study of the self uh, within the regression of the 20th century. And how is this knowledge used not to gain like a deeper introspection into the psyche, but as a form of management and and what what kind of missed opportunity this is and and how this like problem persists as a kind of subjective suffering. I think that the articles that we read, at least from the left, there's nothing about that really. I mean, there is one fundamental point about the reactions from the left, and that is none of them address the historical failure of the left to change the world, which is in a way like maybe more implicitly portrayed in, in Adam Curtis' documentary because he doesn't address um, the historical horizons of, of Marxism. He doesn't address the historical horizons of like the Second International as a Marxist mass movement around the world. But that, that I found is very interesting because that to me, you know, having this, this understanding of the present as being a result of the failure of the left, that is something that is completely overlooked which is the thing that I see in, you know, Curtis documentaries. But okay, I just want to say that it's unfortunate that alongside that narrative, which I can see how I see it too in the series, there is this return of the problem of imperialism. Like, it's mm. this, he, he's really insistent that what's, that what's at issue is the old problem of the experience of empire, which in the States is the experience of slavery, and that this is fundamentally what isn't resolved. And I would want to say like, well, no, maybe the Chinese revolution already by the time that Xianjing is in power was not interested in defeating capitalism. Like that's the problem, not defeating the old empire like, you know, like the ghost of the old empire, like it's it's sort of backward looking in that way. 
in a way that doesn't grasp how the left needed to be ahead of the curve, not like pushing for a return of some kind of unresolved like past problem, but that that past resentment actually took on new forms by being mediated through capitalist social relations and that the left needed to grasp it in its new form, not explain it under the old empire. Because then it leads him down this funny route that, which is about the loss of like community and the loss of, right? He says like, everyone is mourning the fact that individualism and democracy comes to erode these bonds. And he wants to put the Trump supporters and the Brexit supporters in that category as mourning the kind of communal life of the old peasant societies and, you know, this imagined past and, and this kind of mythology that I agree with what you're saying about the insight of this problem of regression and the symptoms of regression. But I think that the larger framework is this conservative, backward-looking attempt to resolve the problem of community. And what, what I think is interesting about that is how at the same time as he made this, which can be misrecognized as a leftist, this documentary, you have a number of in many ways conservative authors speaking a language that might sound like uh, a form of Marxism or vulgar Marxism that can be misrecognized at least as such. Yes. But that isn't, I think the left isn't really taking it on because they explicitly portray themselves as being on the side of the bad guys, of like kind of being on the side of Trump for some of them. Like some of them publish in uh, American Affairs, which is a Trumpian uh, sort of intellectual journal. Uh, so it's, it's a strange time in terms of what Andreas was also saying, right? How these conservative liberals in a certain way are recognizing something that's happening that they express in this language that would have been that of the left and that yeah. the left doesn't really know what to do with them, which I think is what's going on. The left is behind the conservative liberals, right? Yes. Right, and is embarrassed by it. And so, like, you have that big, you know, massive BBC documentary, and the left doesn't really have much to say about it, right? They're like, well, you you know, you, you, you're not enough of a Marxist, as if that was the, what was at stake, right? Yeah, there is a history here. So... There's a history, a constellation, a historical constellation that he makes between the German uh, Rote Arme Faction and the Chinese Cultural Revolution and the Black Panther Party. So he has this constellation of the new left, more 1970s moment. We've talked about these, you know, different things. I mean, probably the Cultural Revolution, something that we talk a lot less than the other two in Platypus. But what did you think about this constellation, this connection between these three different parts of the left? Well, I thought it was great in really, because these phenomenons, I would say, are really the results of the regression of the new left, right? Like of the failure, you know, the, the Weather Underground organization, for example, in the States and the RIF in Germany, they both result of the failure of the SDS, you know, like in, in, in 69. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Curtis uses the example of Horst Mahler to show how contradictory, you know, this, this social movement actually became or maybe was from the start, I don't know. But 
you know, he, he's really great in, in showing how, you know, student radicals who want to get all the old Nazis out of the universities and out of political positions of power end up, you know, supporting groups who kill Jews. In some ways, Curtis himself is taking that narrative of the new left, right? Like the imperial aggression, etc., and reproducing it in the narrative. Like he's accepting a certain understanding or conceptualization of unfreedom that the new left advances and that is rediscovered constantly by our moment, right? Yeah. And he's just accepted. Yeah. Accommodation to defeat. And right. what, what's, what's particularly disappointing, because that made me, you know, the, the Michael X stuff and the, the Black Panther Party stuff made me think of the interviews we published what was it, two years ago now, with uh, founding members of the Black Panther Party, where they said, yeah, sure, we kind of read the little red book by Mao, but it wasn't that, you know, important. But at least we were really trying to do something, whereas those kids doing Black Lives Matter, that's just nonsense. They don't really demand anything. They're not really organized. This is just careerism, right? It's, it's pure opportunism. Mm -hmm. And that Curtis, who has this really perceptive understanding of the Black Panther Party and how uh, it degenerated, at least in the UK, or how it was completely infiltrated by cops and the FBI and so on, then today ends up thinking, oh, wow, what's going on with Black Lives Matter is really something, right? Nothing's going on, yeah. right? Like nothing has happened. Nothing has changed. Biden got elected, and that's perhaps as much as, as Black Lives Matter has done so far. Uh, or, you know, they've reformed the police to a limited extent, but that was already done in 2016. And so that he would have any sort of enthusiasm for that stuff today shows that I think there's, like, what I thought, yeah, again, what I thought was also very much part of that, of him accepting the new left narrative in a certain way, which is his complete inability to make sense of the past 20 years. He has nothing to say. Right. Uh, and, and to go back to what Sophia was uh, also mentioning earlier, right? Like, again, that quote by David Greber, what is that? Like, precisely not really making sense of, of David Greber's failure to do this. The left today inherits this past, but it does it unconsciously or is unconscious of the, its failures. Mm -hmm. You know, like, because I, I was also thinking of David, the interview we did with David Greber at the time of uh, uh, Occupy, uh, and also when he participated in one of our panels, and where he said in the panel, and it's clearly what he really believed, which is now the whole thing is crumbling. The system is so threatened, it's falling apart. And all we have to do is like shout in its face and then it will just vanish. You know, like precisely Adam Curtis's dream in a certain way, if only there was some sort of, some sort, any sort of political anything, something would happen and nothing happened. They shouted, they shouted and nothing, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. But it was a cool series. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's fun. In light of this, I guess uh, if Adam Curtis wants to address what we've taken up and the left response to his latest series, then that would be appreciated. Thank you so much, guys. And um, thank you for joining us, Victor. Thanks a lot for having me.
This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society featuring original tracks by Tamas Vilaji. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of The Platypus Reviews and panel recordings, visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. If you'd like to check out the convention, you can find a schedule of all of the panels on the webpage. You can chat with us, argue with us. Who knows what may happen? Bye.